Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by a dear friend, one of America's most thoughtful experts on U.S. foreign policy and national security, Jake Sullivan. Jake has numerous positions. He's non-resident senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's a visiting professor at Dartmouth, and he's also a uh, visiting lecturer at Yale Law School. And of course, Jake served in the Obama administration as national security advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, director of policy planning at the State Department, and as deputy chief of staff for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, he was also a senior policy advisor on Secretary Clinton's 2016 campaign and served in her 2008 presidential primary campaign. And I would say he is also a good friend of, of both of ours. And, and it's really amazing to have you here today. Jake, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I just want to begin just asking you a general question. How are you feeling these days, right? You, <laughs> you've done a lot of different things. You had a chance to come out. You've worked at all these institutions. Um, I, when I think of Jake Sullivan, I think of someone who's very busy uh, and always engaged. But lately, it seems to me that you've had more opportunity for reflection. Uh, I can see it in terms of how you interact and you've been hiking a lot. So during that period, how are you feeling? What are you thinking about? You you can see my tan, actually. <laughs> yeah. you know, my, my Irish tan. Just come back from vacation with my wife hiking in the Dolomites in Italy uh, and then stopping in the Faroe Islands on the way home. So that, the, the, that direct if, flight. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. The natural <laughs> progression from Italy back to the United States. Uh, so you've caught me at a good time. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling uh, rested, but also anxious because... I do worry about um, the 2020 election, and I think it's so consequential because if we get a second term of Donald Trump, it's not just the difference between 1x and 2x, it's the difference between 1x and like 10x or x to the 10th uh, in terms of what it says about our country. And so it's funny, you know, I've had the opportunity to do writing, to do speaking, to do teaching, uh, to be engaged in starting new organizations in the last three years. But it's hard for me to pull my mind too far off of this fundamental issue of, are we going to beat this guy and get another chance to steer this country in a better direction? So getting used to being out of government while it's afforded me all these amazing opportunities, um, has also been a little unsettling because the opportunity for public service for all three of us, I think, is just such a fundamental part of what drives us. And finding different ways to serve out of government uh, has been an interesting challenge. Jake, I want to go back uh, to uh, kind of where this desire for public service and interest in foreign policy and, and national security started. And all roads seem to lead back to Minnesota. Uh, but Tell us about what that was like, what kind of family you grew up in, and did you always have this interest in international affairs and the, the world around you? Yeah, so I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was the second of five kids. Um, my mom was in the public schools in Minneapolis uh, as a teacher and a guidance counselor. My dad worked for a couple of decades at the Minneapolis Star Tribune, not as a journalist, though he was on the business side of the newspaper, mm -hmm. um, right as it began to fall apart as an industry. So I 
hold him responsible for the decline of uh, the local newspapers. There you go. Um, and uh, we had a globe on our kitchen table, an old globe. Uh, you know, it still had the USSR, of course, it was grown up in the 80s. Um, and uh, I would spend time with it every night at dinner, memorizing the capitals of every country in the world, kind of looking at the river systems of the, you know, of South America or this, Russia. This may, so I know this made you odd. very popular yeah, in yeah, middle school. Yeah, the rest school. of my siblings were yeah. also like, okay, well, at least we don't have to listen to him talk because right. he's just sitting there studying right. the globe. Um, and for whatever reason, growing up in the heartland in the center of the country, uh, in, in a big, in a vast continent, I still just was constantly thinking about what was happening overseas. And I recently found my applications to college, which when I applied in the, in 1994, we, I still hand wrote the like, right. the, the fill in the blank yeah. stuff, you know? And, and one of the answers I had to write was, what do you want to be when you grow up? Basically a slightly more sophisticated version of that. And I said, I wrote, I want to be a diplomat who works on international legal issues. And how boring is that, that I ended up going to law school and then to the state department. So really, even being there in the Twin Cities as a kid, this was the kind of stuff I thought I wanted to do. That's pretty cool, though. I mean, you were able to not only have those aspirations as a kid, but see them see them play out. So then it was off to Yale undergrad, right? So I went to Yale uh, for undergrad and did a degree in in political science and international studies, um, and then went to Oxford for two years and did a master's in IR, and then I actually kind of had a crossroads moment where I thought, and you guys have heard me talk about this too many times, actually maybe my highest and best use is not going to DC or New York or Geneva or London working on big international issues, but going back home and applying my skills to service in the local community. And so when I went to law school, to Yale Law School after Oxford, I was really more focused on uh, the possibility of building a life and a law practice in Minnesota, not working in foreign policy and national security. But you also had an intervening event also, which was a pretty important uh, clerkship on the Supreme Court. Right. And so after law school, I, I, I spent a year clerking on the Second Circuit and then a year with Justice Breyer at Supreme Court. Um, and for that year, I was fixated on getting back home. I was, you know... And, and I was there during the 2004 election um, and uh, obviously Bush won, Kerry lost. And so that in a way made the choice easier too because it wasn't going to be possible for me to work in Washington in any event. But while all of my colleagues at the court went to either New York or LA or DC, I went home to Minnesota um, after finishing the clerkship because I thought this is the model of public service that makes sense to me. And that lasted for about a year. You know, it's interesting. I'm just thinking, you know, uh, Rich is from a little town in central Pennsylvania. You're from uh, Minnesota. I'm from a farming com community in central California. And, you know, we, you know, our careers took us in, in various ways. And then we find ourselves kind of working uh, for periods of time uh, in the State Department and the White House. In, in many respects, it is an incredible thing that our country has been able to generate this 
you know, sense of opportunity from uh, people in places that are potentially unlikely or, you know, you wouldn't, you know, none of yeah. us are from these sort of dominant families or, you know, parts of the country that are more cosmopolitan. So it's, you know, hopeful as you, as, as you think about it going forward. Ask you, Jake. So I think we all share a, a sense of concern about the way forward. I've been struck more recently, like you. You know, I have a lot of different friends, a lot of friends that are in the Republican Party. I'm struck by what I see as a process where a, a large group of people are kind of trying to make their peace with this person. When I find the reverse, like the longer this goes on, the more uncertainties and anxieties I have about both our country and our ability to resurrect what I would consider to be a more moral course. What do you think's going on there? I think there's really two things going on. The first is that our parties are getting weaker, but partisanship is getting stronger. People feel like the jersey they wear is the jersey they wear, and they don't. it doesn't really matter who is carrying the ball. They're going to support it through thick and through thin. And that is different from basically any point in modern American political history that you have so little fluidity of people crossing party lines. Folks are dialed in because it's tribal. And then I think the second thing that's happened is there's been so much change so fast, demographic change, social change, technological change, that there are just a lot of people in this country who feel unmoored, who feel at sea. And Having somebody like our current president have a very simple answer for, you know, why it is they feel insecure, blaming it on someone else, putting it at someone else's feet, saying, I think things are changing too fast too, and I want to go back to how it was before, even if that before never really existed. That's a very powerful thing. And I think we just sometimes forget how fast this everything is changing, how how rapidly um, our society is evolving. And for a lot of people, that's just downright scary. And Trump is taking advantage of that. Does that make uh, national security and foreign policy less relevant in in these times to ordinary people? In other words, if if their experience is about being unmoored and dislocated, and the president's talking about, I'm going to focus on you, I'm focusing on the four corners of the country. What does that do? You know, there's a lot of big issues tucked into that about America's role in the world, American exceptionalism, yeah. foreign policy generally. You've done a great job over your career of taking those issues and making them relevant to ordinary people. Are they still relevant? In, in this age? They are still relevant, but I think for most people, uh, they, they feel deeply abstract. An argument about interdependence, about... The liberal order. Yeah, yeah, the right. liberal international order. You know, I've, I've written before that I once used this phrase, liberal international order, at a, at a campaign event in 2016 in Ohio, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, I don't, I don't know what that means, but I don't like any of those three words. <laughs> and I thought, okay, okay, I won't, I won't make that case. So, all right. liberal be, international it'll be in every order, subs you know? subsequent yeah, yeah, speech exactly. then. Right. They are abstract because you have to make a, a kind of chain link case for how what happens with trade deals or climate change or disease or terrorism 
in far-flung areas of the world end up coming home to roost for the lived experience of Americans here. And people, they start to lose you because it feels like... Um, That's not my life. Yeah, exactly. Right. At the same time, Donald Trump has redefined national security to be this kind of mashup of identity politics and security so that it's walls and bans and Muslims and migrants and, you know, others coming for you. And um, that's been very effective for uh, a slice of the population who think the only person who can keep them secure against these caravans coming in, against these Muslims coming from other countries is Donald Trump. And that's a dangerous mindset because once you lock identity politics into national security, it becomes much harder to have a conversation about a more enlightened vision of America's engagement with the rest of the world. So uh, Donald Trump didn't create that mindset though, or that, that fear. And it's kind of a big question again, but if you look at what's happening in our experiencing experience here in the United States with what's taking place in Europe or Latin America or, or parts of Asia, you start to be able to draw some common uh, trend lines in different parts of the world. Is our experience here unique or are we connected to some of these kind of nationalist movements uh, in other in other parts of the globe? And, and is are we in this cyclical period or, you know, is this something we can break out of? Look, I do think we can break out of it because we, we have to remember that there is another America and it's more than 50% of the country who rejects all of this. So I don't think we can be fatalistic. What I do think is interesting about the American experience in the period of 2016 to today compared to the rest of the world is the United States has never really had this be so central, this populist, nationalist, identity, politics-driven, national security conversation, zero-sum mindset in the modern era. It's never been as central to the political conversation as it is with Donald Trump. And that's because Democratic presidents and Republican presidents have defined foreign policy and national security and our engagement with the world according to a set of pretty common terms. Now, George Bush was very different from Barack Obama on a lot of things, but on some of these underlying fundamental questions, they were quite similar. So after 9-11, George Bush made a very strong pitch to the American people to not make this about right. religion and Islam and so forth. You can't imagine Donald Trump doing the same thing in a similar circumstance. I do think that that is different about the current state of play in the United States compared with what has come before. And what makes it different from the rest of the world is particularly Europe has been grappling with this kind of argument about identity and assimilation and uh, migration for a very long time. The United States has always kind of stood up and said, we're a bit different. We're a bit better than Europe on these issues. And it's bearing out that in fact, we are not. And we're going to have to face that squarely and do something about it. So, Jake, since you've uh, left government, one of the things that's most interesting and admirable about you is you've taken on a lot of intellectual projects, some of the hardest questions along the lines that Rich indicated. The project that I really have followed, and you saw some of the, the results of that in the Atlantic, is you're trying to explore what a, sort of a middle-class foreign policy looks like, what a foreign policy that's more connected to the American people and less, you know, we talked about the liberal international order, the, the most recent 
poll by the Center for American Progress, a distressingly small number of people support and understand what that is. It it seems to me we're seeing an experiment where, uh, as Susan Rice has indicated, you know, the president's foreign policy really is a direct continuation of his attempt to secure his base, right? Mm -hmm. Agricultural policy, a variety of different things. Give us a sense of what you think a a foreign policy of the modern Democratic Party looks like. We've seen a few speeches already in this early stage of the campaign. Vice President Biden has given a a speech which has a lot of familiar themes. Some have suggested that it is more backward-looking. I don't think that's completely fair, but there are certainly elements of going back to normalcy. Mayor Buttigieg has done a speech that basically seems like it's critical of President Obama and that approach, but it's not clear to me what he's offering instead. In fact, it feels a little bit like, you know, I disagreement, but then, you know, continuity in some respects. How would you posit the sort of the themes and um, areas of focus of uh, a new democratic foreign policy? You know, it's interesting. If you go back to the first Obama national security strategy, uh, which came out in 2010, one of the features of it was a whole section that said, in order to be strong abroad, we have to be strong at home. So the link between domestic and foreign policy ran as follows. A strong domestic foundation allows for a strong foreign policy. Bill Clinton said something very similar. I think a modern democratic uh, foreign policy flips that. It says, actually, we have to be strong abroad so that we can be strong at home. That is to say, our foreign policy activities in the world should all be geared towards national strength in the United States, not our domestic strength should be, you know, all That's about really interesting. making us stronger in the world. Right. Have, and, you, and, have you articulated, I have not seen that really anywhere, Jake. Well, I, it's uh, yeah, coming to you live on, first the, on Tea Leaves, on the tea leaves let's, podcast. Let's, let's get to the print. Let's, yeah. <laughs> let's get to your father to get this out in the Minneapolis newspaper. Yeah, oh, exactly right. Out of business. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a great example of this is how the United States has thought about its trade and economic policy from the perspective of opening markets around the world for U.S. companies. Perfectly plausible thing to do, okay, makes sense. And in fact, when I was at the State Department, I would travel with Secretary Clinton and we would advocate on behalf of American business everywhere. But I do think we have to ask ourselves, how much does, for example, improving market access for U.S. companies in China actually matter in terms of jobs and wages in the United States? Sometimes the answer is quite a bit. Sometimes the answer is not at all. Or, or it could have a, or a negative effect. effect. Right. right, exactly. It could lead to, you know, moving production and, and resources and so forth abroad. I have to say, you know, you mentioned you're from Fresno, Johnstown, Minneapolis. I do think we brought where we came from to our jobs, but I think we did get a little disconnected from the rootedness of being, you know, uh, from these communities, these middle-class communities in the heartland of the United States in our jobs in government. Um, And that's because of this bipartisan view about what foreign policy was supposed to be that ran across Democratic and Republican administrations. So in the Situation Room, when we were debating big issues, you rarely had the question, okay, what does this actually mean at the end of the day for the strength and the standing of the American middle class? And I think whether it's trade and economic policy 
or frankly, you know, how we're allocating our resources vis-a-vis things like the global war on terror. You know, do we, should we really be spending $45 billion a year to keep 10,000 troops or so in Afghanistan right now? Now, this is not a pure guns versus butter question. Uh, I think progressives simplify things too much by saying just spend $1 less on that, $1 more on education. It doesn't quite work that way. But these are the kinds of conversations that we haven't had. And, you know, as awful as Donald Trump has been, I think he has opened a space for us in our party to have this conversation much more forcefully. And, you know, uh, I think Joe Biden in, in his recent speech hit on some of these themes. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, well, I don't disagree, well, I don't agree with them on, on some things, have sounded this theme quite effectively as well. Uh, and, and so I have hope that going forward, the Democratic Party will be able to have a true method of connecting the actions we take abroad to the middle class here at home, not the nonsense rhetoric that we get from the current president. I want to turn your attention to a specific issue in a specific country that you spent a lot of time on, and, and that's Iran, and uh, specifically the uh, Iran nuclear deal. And obviously coming in to the uh, Trump administration came out of Paris Climate Agreement, TPP, and Iran nuclear deal. I, I convinced to this day, I'm not sure the president read any one of those three deals, but obviously if Barack Obama was for it, he was going to come out of it. But Given that you and Bill Burns and others were central architects of the Iran deal, and just yesterday, uh, the president from the Oval Office was talking about what a horrible deal this was and didn't cover ballistic missiles, and it opened up billions of dollars into the Iranian economy. Uh, Give us your side of the story and why this was the right deal at, at the right time. Well, so first of all, he, I think, has more than once said it was the worst deal in human history, which, if true, would be really a remarkable accomplishment. <laughs> right, congratulations. there's been a lot of deals in yeah. human history. If this was literally the worst one. I'd, I'd mean, like right. to see that on your resume. <laughs> right. Right. Author of the worst deal in history. <laughs> Actually, uh, just a funny anecdote. When, uh, when we did the interim agreement um, that sort of set the foundation for the final Iran deal, as it was coming out, Bill Burns and I had been up all night for like four straight nights locking down the final details. And so I was pretty punchy. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu came out and said, you know, this is a historic mistake. And I remember turning to Bill totally seriously and just being like, oh my God, is this a, that would be terrible. (laughs) Like, did we just, (laughs) was this a historic mistake, a historic mistake we just made, you know, and he's sort of like, calm down, man, right, you know, go right. get some sleep, whatever. Right. Look, the, the Iran nuclear deal is essentially an arms control agreement. What it says is that the international community can verifiably assure that Iran cannot get a nuclear weapon by putting curbs on its ability to produce uranium and plutonium, by having inspectors be able to make sure that that's the case, and by dismantling aspects of the program that we considered most dangerous. And it achieved all of those things. Now, it was not a perfect agreement insofar as it didn't deal with every one of Iran's problems, and it didn't deal with this problem in perpetuity. But every arms control agreement is a limited time agreement, and then you get follow-ons. So SALT-1 led to SALT-2. START-1 led to New START. And the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran deal, would have led to another Iran deal for another period of time. 
to consistently keep the Iran nuclear program in a box. It was working. Iran was complying. And we managed to accomplish all of that without having to fire a single shot. And by the way, without creating all kinds of instability in the Persian Gulf along the way. So now Trump's pulled out of the deal and basically said, I think I can get abject Iranian surrender. They're just going to come out with their hands up. And I think that that is not going to happen. And as we've seen, what the Iranians have done instead is move their nuclear program forward, attack shipping in the Gulf, saber rattled towards U.S. forces in the region. And so we're in a worse position today than we were before. And I just hope that actually the point you made at the beginning, which is Trump never read any of these deals, so maybe he would do the same thing if it was just called the Trump plan of action, um, that he'll end up going back to the table and negotiating more or less what we negotiated before. Well, it's interesting. If if um, if Senator Rand Paul is the back channel right. negotiator, the other day he said, looks like we might be able to get a nuclear freeze uh, with, with Iran, which seems sounds to me good. sounds familiar. To- I mean, it is. And, and Trump himself said, look, I'm not interested in all these other issues. I just want to make sure they can't get a nuclear weapon. And, and part of me thinks that Macron and Merkel and others should go to the president and say, we got a great idea for you. Why don't you go to the Iranians and offer them a deal where there's sanctions relief for them rolling back their nuclear program, freezing it in place? Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> we'll you call know? it the Trump deal. We'll call deal. it the Trump deal. Right. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. I think he would go for that. Now, there is an Iran industrial complex in this town that is not particularly interested in the end of the day in the narrow question of Iran's nuclear ambitions, but the larger question of the future of the Iranian regime. But, but look, you could, you could look at foreign policy issues, whether it's on North Korea or Iran or whatever, in the last 20 years. And, and most of the folks that worked on those issues lived in fear about what this small cottage industry yeah. that was linked to the hard right of the Republican Party. I think, Jake, what the president has done is the, the, the chief feature of the Republican Party is you got to be with him on whatever the issue is. So it's not what, you know, it's like the Team Jersey thing you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. And so, so what he can do at a moment's notice is pull the rug out from under Bolton in a way that none of the right, the hard right, is going to be comfortable coming out against the president on. So in many respects... We're in a situation where really how this all plays out, it, you know, is down to how the president feels yeah. and stuff. And I, how I, he I, feels and whether he's got the attention span to actually dial in and yeah. do it, which he has had with these Kim Jong-un meetings, but it'll be interesting to see whether but, he but, has But, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But, like, if you listen to the press conference he had yesterday with the Pakistani prime minister, uh, it, you know, some of the things he said were, you know, he said, look, we could win in Afghanistan. We right. could win tomorrow. Yeah. But it would require, like, bombing. 10 Af- million people. Yeah. 10 no, million we would people. kill 10 million but, people. But, but that's not winning. I mean, that, right. and, but the fact that no one stands up and say, actually, Mr. President, that's crazy. That's that's genocide, right? Uh, you can't talk like that. But, but fundamentally, uh, there's none of that. I mean, he is able to operate without constraints. That is certainly the case. And every time we've thought over the last two and a half years, okay, this will be a bridge too far for whatever's left of the Republican establishment, we've been proven wrong. And so I do think as a rule of thumb, if he decided to declare victory on Iran 
by just going back to some modified version of the JCPOA, he'd essentially drag everyone with him. I think it is the hardest case, though. It is the case where there are the most, uh, there's the most kind of built up kind of system of, of pushback against that kind of deal. Um, so if he's able to do it on that issue, he could do it on any issue. I'm not 100% sure that he doesn't feel some constraint on this, at least from uh, not just members, but you know some of his biggest supporters who feel very passionately about this issue. Jake, thanks so much. We look forward to continuing this conversation on our next episode. And to our subscribers, thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.